Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, we're joined by Carla Bergman, co-director of Emma Talks. Our host, Am Johal, and guest Fiera Lepinios chat with Carla about her work with Emma Talks and the Purple Thistle Institute and ways to enact social change through community-engaged projects. Welcome to Below the Radar. We have Carla Bergman with us and Fiorella Pinios, who also works with me at the SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Welcome, Carla. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Carla. It's nice to see you again after um, a year more. Yeah, I think we did our last Emma talk last October 2018. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to start with a question because when I first met you, Carla, it was related to the Purple Thistle, which is such a a marvelous organization that um, lives on in the memories of a lot of people, but certainly influenced, inspired so many people. I'm wondering if you can share with the the audience what the Purple Thistle was and, and some of your work there. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely a good place to start in terms of community engagement in my work. It was founded in 2001 by Matt Hearn and I think about six youth between the ages of 15 and maybe 18 to create a space that they could run with his support and mentorship. And it was based on their interests. So at the time it was visual arts mostly and zine writing and journalism. So that's what they did. And it ran for 15 years. And in 2009, I joined on as the co-director with Matt and... Then, yeah, Matt and I approached UM to do an alternative to university summer institute. And I was actually thinking on the way here how, I don't know about you, but I get emails at least once a month from somebody from the institute how it was like a huge moment in their life that spurred on a project or their work or, I mean, even somebody who just did a PhD, I won't out them, said that it was, you know, it was kind of in the roots of the PhD so I think it was like a really cool project and had lots of tentacles. Yeah, and had a chance to actually interview a number of people who were teaching uh, in it. So Matt Hearn's been a guest here, Jeff Mann, Astra Taylor when she, when she came through, and Glenn Coulthard we just interviewed uh, at the library as part of the podcast festival. That was our faculty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about like the Institute? Where did you hold it and... It was out of two spots, the Purple Thistle Center, which was on Vernon Drive. It's close to Clark and Venables. And then I always get the name wrong, but the the Socialist Center on Clark Drive, we did it out of those two spots. And then in the gardens, part of half of the day, uh, the participants connected to organizations they were interested in to volunteer. And because it was, you know, I think our tagline was radical social change from below or something. And it was about connecting theory with practice. So morning was classes with one of us teaching. Everyone had to take Glenn's class because uh, decolonization was at the center of the project. And then you got to choose another, I think, one or two classes a day. And then the afternoon was your placement. And Carla, in terms of your own relationship to theory and activism, uh, where did you begin getting involved as an activist and a writer and getting engaged with critical theory? I think 
It started pretty young. I did not like school, uh, so I sought out mentors and I spent a lot of time at libraries and in bookstores reading books. You know, I couldn't afford to buy them, but I was just just hungry for rigor and was frustrated that school didn't do that for me. I have a joke that I dropped out of every institution I ever went to, except for Langara. I actually graduated from Langara, um, which I think says a lot about how great that school was at one time, and maybe it still is. But most of my theoretical or philosophical or critical theory stuff came through relationships and through mentorship and through informal ways of reading texts together. I, you know, I did do some university and took some philosophy classes. And it's interesting because I think I write about this in Joyful Militancy in my acknowledgments, but the one philosophy class I took, the teacher just happened to love Spinoza. And so our whole class was pretty much on Spinoza. And then, you know, fast forward 20 years and I'm writing a book about joy that's based on Spinoza and thinking on the topic. And so, you know, it's interesting of like what came first, theory or practice, but it's this, this like... You can, you can often trace it back to like these little moments of a spark or a seed planted. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how this institute influenced Emma Talks. Right. It has a direct link. <laughs> I, I did a class on, I don't even remember the name of my class. Um, I think it was called Unsettling Education and Deschooling or something. And I was looking for materials to give to the participants who had signed up for my class at the institute. And I wanted a a different, you know, I didn't want just written essays and other stuff. So I was looking for videos online of of theory and of just storytelling and ideas that were thinking about the topics I was interested in. I had a really difficult time finding women and and people of color. I mean, if you look up TED Talks, it's the first pages and pages is white men, white cis men. So I was having, I think we were having a break with actually with Astor Taylor, and I said, wouldn't it be cool if we did like a feminist radical TED Talks, like maybe out of the Institute or something? And it was sort of was like this moment of thinking about that. And and then, you know, life goes on, and you get things get busy. And then years later, Leanne and Simpson and I had just decided to meet up and meet each other and talk. And I told her about Emma Talks, this idea in our conversation, and she just lit up. And she's like, just do Emma Talks. <laughs> There's something about, you know, that was just enough. And then I met, I immediately came and um, sought out M <laughs> and said that, you know, we don't want to do it in a traditional, like, community organizing way in a small hall somewhere. Like, I, I want it to actually be a bit of a competition to TED Talks. I want it to be a really nice space. I want the sound to be good. I want the videos to be professionally done and people to feel like they're really taken care of. So he um, jumped on board and really supported the launch of the project because I think the, your community, the community engagement office helped pay for a lot of things to get it off the ground, if I remember correctly, like from the website to everything. Yeah, can you talk about some of the guests that came in? Because it was quite an eclectic group of people and I, I really liked how you paired speakers, guests that were coming in also with uh, emerging voices as right. well. So that kind of practice, community engagement, started really early on in my work. I was really interested in how do you bring emerging, I was particularly interested in youth, but just emerging newer writers or artists together with well-seasoned in a way that's not tokenistic. Like, how can we do it so that it feels genuine? You know, like, I see it as a mutual aid relationship of supporting each other. 
So when we decided to launch Emma Talks, I brought in a partner who I was making a film with. I should say, I want to mention Corn Brown because she was really excited about the project and I wouldn't have done it without her because she brought in all the skills of doing the videos <laughs> and, and doing sh uh, live shoots, which are really hard. So yeah, and you can see all the videos. I'm sure you'll tell people after, but emmatalks.org. The first one we started with a new, young, emerging writer and activist. His name is Kian Cham. At the time, they went by different names, so you can find it on the same day as Leanne Simpson. So I paired him with Leanne, and that was the launch. I'm trying to think who else. Julie Flett and Hiromi Goto, which they were more even. <laughs> that was a bit of a different one. Yeah, but it was Astra Taylor and Jackie Wong. Astra uh, Taylor and Jackie poster Wong. poster on my office. Yeah. Mineo and Sarah Hunt. There is Honorary Chief um, George yeah. and Chief Jan yes. and um, Celia Joseph. also brought Joseph, in a yes. very well-known writer from the States. Yes, Rebecca Solnet. She, <laughs> of course, was solo. <laughs> um, that was a, probably the one time where the project was a bit different. Uh, we usually did living room style. We, were, we made art in the same room and ate in the same room, and the women and gender nonconforming folks would speak in the same room. But Rebecca, of course, brought in a larger audience, so we did a different structure. And you also had an all-female tech crew. Yeah, so that was a big part of our project, was training young women in film and tech, because it's really hard to get that. And Corin headed up that too. So that was also going on then on the night of the event, which is a big part. She was mentoring Usually, you know, one out of the four or two out of the four on camera knew what they were doing. The other two was like pretty new. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you about some of your writing projects. So Joyful Militancy came out a few years ago with mm -hmm. AK Press. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about what sure. their book is um, about. So I co-wrote that book with Nick Montgomery and it came out, yeah, November 2017. It's two years old. It's doing really well. It's really exciting. Primarily what I hear from AK Press and through the internets is that people read it together. Collectives often do book gatherings, which is to me the best thing to hear because, you know, the book came out of collective thinking and a little bit out of the Institute because we were having these conversations at the Institute, but really came out of a project that we ran called the Social Spaces Summit that the Thistle Institute put on, which brought people who run spaces all over North America together. Like usually the, it was all the organizers. So we'd get together for, we did two of them for three or four days and talk about issues that were coming up in collectives. And one of the things that people kept talking about was how the social spaces gathering was such a joyful gathering. And people were like, you should write about it. So that was kind of where, it, you know, where the seed started. And also during that time, people were talking about the difficulties that were happening within radical and left collectives and spaces, which were an increase of burnout, an increase of call-out culture, an increase of relationships crumbling, alongside an emergent, massive time of like these mini kind of outbursts, like from Arab Spring to Black Lives Matter. Like two things were happening at once, we were noticing, and we wanted to we wanted to kind of go public with the other conversation that was happening quietly alongside that to really hold up that people are thriving. People do do good work in most of the book. While it is rooted in theory and there's a lot of theory in it, it is an engagement with activists and scholars talking about other ways of being together that are more generative and more joyful and more love-centered. 
Who do you feel that the book is most influenced by or other books that it's in conversation with? I mean, I have my like my own interests, but I'm, it seems that people, like what I hear from professors and people who are putting books together, it seems to go uh, alongside Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategies. That seems to be a big connection. I'm at a loss to think what else, but I'm sure AK Press would have more to say. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about your journey um, and how like motherhood shaped your journey. And I'm so amazed by your work and um, how you have been able to like survive as an independent uh, artist, you know, creating all these like amazing projects and, you know, realizing all this. I mean, I don't, um, that's a lot. That's a big, that's a big question. Parenting. My kids are 10 years apart, so the oldest is, is really responsible for why I ended up doing a lot of what I'm doing. When he was young, I was specializing in and studying genocide studies. So very different than what I'm doing and what I ended up doing. But then I noticed when he was about in grade two that he was always one of these like passionate learners and like just a nerd ball and loved everything and went deep. And his lights went out in school and they just he just lost his interest. And so we intervened and we pulled him out of school. And I met Matt Hearn's brother, actually, who said, why isn't your kid in Windsor House? Which is a, um, was a, ran for over 40 years of democratically funded school that Matt Hearn and others worked at. So we sort of went on this path of that with him. And I, I started hanging out there and volunteering and hanging out with a lot of the kids. It was K to 12. And my son, I started wanting, you know, older kids around for him to mentor. So I started... I ran like weird classes like peace and conflict studies with the kids, with the <laughs> teens and, um, you know, and just I was always trying to radicalize. They were already radicalized. I was always trying to cause trouble with them. Like, you know, once a teacher would be like, no more hanging out in the halls. And I'd be like, oh, the halls are where all the action happens. So I would be the one who would be like, let's hang out in the halls with the kids. You know, I would run my classes in the hall. So I was just started working with young people because that's where I was. And then Zach ended up looking for more art based stuff went to the Thistle at age 11, and then I just kind of followed him and then did a, a magazine project that was called Rain, Radical Art in Nature, and we did seven copies, and it had the same model, um, putting well-seasoned writers with emerging. Like I think in the first issue, I have a piece from Daisy Couture and Noam Chomsky, <laughs> and I think I put them side by side, if I remember correctly, <laughs> and it was just on purpose. And Daisy is Matt Hearn's daughter, who at the time I think was 12. Oh, wow. And that, so it just sort of... I didn't plan to work with youth. I never wanted to be an educator, or I I'm still wouldn't say I'm an educator, but they definitely took me on the route. My son is my muse. He's a, an incredible artist and a musician and writer, and I we often collaborate, and, and my youngest is too. So it's all connected. You have a new book out. It's called Radiant Voices, or it's about to come out in the sense that there will be a launch soon. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that project and where it came from. Sure. Um, Taryn Boyd, who is the publisher at Touchwood Editions and lives in Victoria, but actually it was Jackie Wong, I think, Emma talks because she knows her, um, but really excited and asked for a meeting and said that she would like to just put a book out that was all the talks and I thought that was really a sweet idea but also 
thinking about platforms and about access, I was like, okay, what if we just did eight of the talks and the rest of the book is new people who maybe wouldn't ever give a talk, i.e. me, <laughs> and who, or just for a whole kinds of reasons. One of the things, like originally when I thought about Emma Talks, I thought it would go on the road because a lot of women say no to doing these talks because they can't leave their families. There's all kinds of reasons why women don't travel to do talks at the same level of men, even with people thinking more about asking them. So the book was a perfect opportunity to invite in women who I know couldn't necessarily make a talk or make it to Vancouver. Yeah, so it followed the same thread of curation style. Is there anything next that is coming up for Emma Talks? Do you have any new projects or...? Nothing right away. We're going to launch the book. Emma Talks, we, um, it was hard to get funding for it. We did get a lot of funding for the first year, but then a lot of funders, they like to just do like a, they like funding pilots, but then they want you to do your own scaling up. And I didn't want to start charging because it was always free. And yeah, we just had to do work that makes springs and making a living, both of us. So we have a pact with each other, Corn and I, that if we'll be emergent with it, like if certain somebody said that they want to do a talk out of the blue or an opportunity came and you guys were available or something like we would do it mm-hmm. yeah you're working on a film project right yes <laughs> what's going on with that what's the film about um it's a it's still in process we are in production and we got funded from canada council and nfb took us on for their one of their projects which is which is really nice to have their support. It's a film about language and colonization, essentially, and it follows three women's journey in finding belonging in their communities through language learning. One is a Squamish woman, and one is Maori, and one is Irish, kind of like pathways to belonging. We're going to New Zealand in January to film, and Ireland in April, and yeah. I just like, I don't want to be that person's like, I did 20 things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but you do 20 things uh. and, and it is amazing. And I find it so inspiring. And like, so that was, I guess, my question is like, how do you do 20 things and get funded for, <laughs> for 20 things and, and, you know, survive doing this amazing work? I mean, collaboration is at the heart of, I always joke that I'm a chronic collaborator. I try to learn from my son how to be more of a solo artist because I do get a lot of pleasure out of working solo creatively, like writing poetry or thinking about it, like I have a couple animation ideas. But yeah, it's collaboration. I really like supporting young women who are emerging and like I love collaborating with them and helping. And it's always, it's always co-mentorship. Like I always learn just as much or more. I also, it's the way I do things. Like, I didn't go to school to be a filmmaker, so I tend to have to work with filmmakers (laughs) to do, you know, I have an idea, like this big, huge idea. I'm like, so how do I write a treatment? (laughs) Can you edit it for me? Um, Yeah, so collaboration. And it has really, I do way less than I used to. I would say the projects are a little bit bigger in scope, I guess, in size, but less people involved. It used to be like way more people. (laughs) Yeah. And when you uh, look at the kind of long arc of activism you've been involved with and the different types of projects you've been involved with, how do you read the city now in terms of kind of uh, what's needed? What are new projects that would make a contribution uh, to the city in terms of, you know, the gaps that are out there? Because the city changes, right? Yeah. Uh, Housing. I mean, it's just... 
when the thistle closed, people were pretty sad. And we wrote a letter. We worked really hard to have a different narrative when it closed. Yeah, gentrification is part of it. Yeah, being priced out is part of it. Yeah, losing funding is part of it. But really, some projects should just end. And what was coming up for me as an organizer and thinking about spaces was that, like, we can have all the cultural spaces in the world, but if people can't afford to live here, then, I mean, what are we doing? And so I actually got less interested in cultural art spaces and more interested in housing. And my, you know, if I have like an activist hat that's less art, it's around housing right now. And I have a project that me and Nick Montgomery and Michelle Nahaney are working on called Solidarity Housing Society. And it's in a feasibility study stage. But the idea basically is reparations. And it's working with um, homeowners actually about transferring their homes, people who are maybe empty nesters who maybe have a lot of wealth tied up into their home but don't have any income or cash poor and there's all different models that we're working on it's actually asking activists who say that they're in solidarity or with indigenous people's sovereignty here but then like we're saying okay well here's this tool that you can give your house back to the Squamish nation for instance but you will get paid for it and you will be it's a win-win situation that's why it's called solidarity and is that everyone wins in this situation. It's quite nuanced, and I'm probably not doing it justice, but we are in the research phase. But that's where my heart and activism is in terms of the city, is around making it affordable. I mean, I, I know you probably know, Am, and both of you know, all of us know, that so many of our friends and colleagues and fellow comrades have had to leave the city, and we're, we're one foot out as well. Like, we, we barely can afford to live here as well. Carla, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Carla Bergman for joining us on Below the Radar. Stay in the loop with Below the Radar by following us on Twitter and Facebook. And be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. As always, thanks to the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Paige Smith, Rachel Wong, Fiorella Pinios, Kathy Fang, and Jackie Obunga. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. Mm-hmm.